This week's episode is kindly supported by Species Unite. Species Unite is a series of conversations with world-leading activists, advocates, artists, filmmakers and conservationists who are fighting injustice towards animals. Listen to conversations with Mercy for Animals' Leah Gosses, filmmakers Beverly and Derek Schubert, and legendary photographer Joanne MacArthur, Barbara King, whose TED Talk about animal emotions went viral, Ma Ching of Animal Hope and Wellness on his time inside Asia's dog slaughterhouses, Jan Kremer on the end of circuses, and so many others who've dedicated their lives to create a better world for all the inhabitants who share it, a world of coexistence. Find out more at speciesunite.com or click the link in the description. A lot of pandemics and zoonotic diseases, as they're called, so those are diseases that jump from animals to people, are caused directly by the way that we factory farm animals because we've given these viruses the ideal conditions for them to jump from animal to animal to animal to animal and to mutate, not tens of times, but trillions of times. And it just takes those right mutations for them to be able to infect human beings. And of course, that's what's happening with increasing regularity since factory farming was invented. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we have Juliet Galatly. Juliet is a British writer and animal rights activist. She's the founder and director of Viva and a former director of the Vegetarian Society. She's also the founding director of the Vegetarian and Vegan Foundation, now known as Viva Health. After obtaining a degree in zoology and psychology, Juliet became the Vegetarian Society's first youth education officer and rose to become its director. She launched Green Scene, Britain's only magazine for young vegetarians and was its editor for five years. In 1994, she launched Viva, a registered charity that campaigns for vegetarian and vegan lifestyles. It continues today. In 1997, Julia created a website to campaign against the culling of kangaroos and the trade in their meat. Juliet expanded the campaign to the football industry, launching the Killing for Kicks campaign. In 1999, Juliet was the winner of the Lynn McCartney Award for Animal Welfare. She is also the author of many books, including The Livewire Guide to Going, Being and Staying Veggie, The Silent Ark, A Chilling Expose of Meat, The Global Killer, and Born to be Wild, The Livewire Guide to Saving Animals. Juliet is a good friend of mine and a wonderful person and is a light in the darkness for animals. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Juliet. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Robbie. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the stage Viva founder and director, Juliet Galatly. So uh, we've had this plan for a long time uh, to sort of sit down and talk about everything that you've been doing and uh, all the amazing things you've done in the past. So I'm really glad and happy to be doing it because we've had lots of great conversations on the phone and I'm always saying to myself, I really need to do a podcast with Juliet and record some of this wisdom. <laughs> I know, we're always so busy, aren't we? <laughs> but here we are. So but before we talk about all the amazing things you've done uh, and are doing now, let's go back in time and uh, let's hear your vegan story. How did it all begin for you? It all began, I guess, when I was probably really small. My mum said back then that I used to sort of save and collect the local animals that I thought were strays. And I remember a cat giving birth to three kittens in my wardrobe really clearly when I was about eight years old. And so clearly this love for animals was just inherent in me. And she said, you always fought for the underdog. 
I didn't know anything, though, about how animals were reared for meat and dairy and fish at all. I was brought up in a bog-standard meat-consuming family, and that's what I did. And then as you start to sort of think things through for yourself, but you have to remember, I'm going back such a long time, you know, I didn't know any of the vegetarians, let alone vegans. Um, I didn't even know any meat reducers. So there was nobody in the school offering any support, nobody in my family. But somehow, some way, I found some information. Because remember, this is pre-Google and all the rest of it, about how animals were factory farmed. And I started to talk to people about it. And somebody said, well, do you eat animals? And I just thought, oh, my God. <laughs> but how do you do something in a world where you don't know anything? And so I did just give up you know, consuming animals and was a Bolshe so-and-so. And I managed to forge my way with a then agricultural university student to actually see for myself, believe it or not, in my early teens, that's how determined I was about things. And I did go to one of the biggest show places in the whole of the UK back then, which was in the Midlands. And I saw pigs for myself back then, they were still in sow stalls. So I went into this massive shed where all the female pregnant pigs were literally chained in these little you know, cages, let's call them, surrounded by bars. And it was just, you know, I'd read about it, but it's something else completely seeing it for yourself. And I think something else, again, when you were that young age, because your brain hasn't completely finished developing and you are much more impressionable. And I found it really quite difficult to cope with that this was being condoned. And I remember walking into, it was battery shed then, so it's five hens to a cage and there were about five um, levels of cages, one on top of the other in this dark place. And the thing that I really remember, shoving this door open because the sound of the noise was so loud and the whole shed filled with tens of thousands of birds went deadly quiet. And I just thought this is some kind of picture of hell. And I, anyway, cutting it short now, I went home to my parents, of course, and told my mum about it and she was very upset and I managed to get hold of some videos and I literally forced her to watch them <laughs> practically tied her down to the settee <laughs> um you know um my dad was much more dismissive uh, mickey taking but to my joy my sister and my brother almost immediately went vegetarian at that point with me my mum offered a lot of empathy because she loved animals but she she didn't do it. And she was convinced that I was going to, you know, absolutely waste away. And I remember really clearly I got this rice dish where she chopped up chicken really, really, really tiny, so, hoping I would do it because she was that convinced, I mean, <laughs> that you needed protein from meat. Seriously, you know, obviously I rejected it and said, stop doing this. And I started doing, you know, really bolshy teenage things like putting stickers on tins in the cupboard saying, warning, this comes from a dead animal and stuff like that. I must have, wow. you know, <laughs> no, I was just very passionate. And yeah. I knew something clicked in me that I had to end this. I had to work to end this. And I was so rose-tinted spectacles. I literally thought all I needed to do was tell people about what I'd seen, but on a much bigger scale. And everybody would change because why wouldn't they? <laughs> and uh, anyway, it, that set me on the path to doing the degree that I did, which was zoology. I did zoology, actually, out of a love for life, love for animal life. But it has actually been a really useful degree. Tell us about what is it, what's, the, what's the role of a zoologist? What do they do? So so a zoologist is somebody who studies animals in, in, in a nutshell, and it could be you specialise usually in, you know, certain types of animals or certain species. And that's what some of my friends actually did. And, so, you know, one's become a reptile specialist, for example. 
And of course, most people never use the degree, like every degree. But yeah. it's, it's stood me in good stead for understanding a lot of, you know, what I talk about, actually, with Viva. Well, it's Viva's 25th anniversary. So what better way to celebrate than with a hard-won victory for the animals? If you haven't already heard, where have you been? Following Viva's third investigation, Tesco have dropped Hogwood Farm. And Red Tractor have suspended them. The owner of Hogwood Pig Farm went on the BBC last week saying he'd find another supplier. In the meantime, he didn't know that Viva was on to their major supplier, Cranswick Foods. Now they're one of the UK's leading food producers. They own a third of the UK pig market. They have an annual revenue of 1.5 billion pounds. Following Viva um, contacting them, they announced they'll immediately stop receiving all deliveries from Hogwood Pig Farm following our investigation. This is a huge victory. Don't underestimate the ripples that this has sent through the industry. Cranswick said in an official statement on their website, having seen the indefensible footage by Viva, we've taken the decision to permanently cease accepting any future deliveries from Hogwood Farm. Yeah, so obviously then you were at this college and you'd you'd st you'd studied and you've you know moved moved your kind of understanding of the world on a bit and those rose tinted glasses had slept a bit. <laughs> How did you sort of start to formal formalize your tactics or as a campaigner or someone? How did because obviously I assume at the time you didn't really have anyone around you who you could look up to with regards like the, you know learning these skills. Like how did you did you find an organization mm. join it? Yeah, what I started to do, I'd say about age 11. So, um, yeah, definitely about age 11. I found out about snaring animals and which, you know, shockingly is still legal, you know, in the UK. And I set up a petition and that was my first little bit of waking up because, again, I thought it was so cool that I'd find it easy to get people on board. And a lot of people my own age just laughed at it and were almost embarrassed by the fact that I cared so that were you know you start to learn don't you very quickly about human reaction because people don't respond the way that you have and I remember when I went to college and uh, pre-university and did A levels I was much much more active then and a much more I wouldn't say I was really confident but I felt so strongly about it I made myself do things that I felt very uncomfortable with in terms of starting to talk speak out and debate and I was very nervous actually but I felt so powerfully you know um that, that, that this had to end. So one of my first public speeches I did um, was against dissection. And I can remember literally being, it was very formal and there was a microphone and it was a big audience actually. It was about, I don't know, maybe 400 people. And it was a for and against. And I can remember literally hearing my voice come out of these microphones shaking <laughs> and I couldn't stop it through the whole thing. You did like, you know, say, you know, a few minutes you did it and then the, the opponents did their bit and then everyone voted. Yeah. Fortunately, I won the vote. Amazing. I, I, th I think I was articulate, but boy, oh boy, was I nervous. And the reason I mentioned that is because, you know, people talk about me public speaking now and they go, how do you speak in front of that many people? And, and actually... 
in my case, forcing myself to do it. <laughs> it is a quite an art form, and I've personally heard you speak at a vegan camp out and a few other events. And you know, you obviously don't show any sign of nerves or or, or anxiety at all. Um, but as you say, it is a is it a skill that you have to practice? Do you find that kind of having something that you really believe in, that you feel so strongly and passionate about, makes all the difference? I think I could, as long as I knew the topic, I think that's where nerves come from for many people, isn't it? They think they're going to be caught out in some way. I think I could do public speaking because I enjoy public speaking. It's one of my most favourite parts of my role now. But at the beginning, it was through forcing myself to do it. And when I got one of my first roles, it was very public speaking oriented because it was um, involved going to schools and I was doing two to four talks every week to an age group that then wasn't that much younger than myself and I knew and I again I can remember sitting in classrooms with kids and my voice shaking again and I, I knew my nerves were showing through but I just made myself keep going and I knew it was the only way to get over it and I did get over it and then you become more confident and you start to play with your audience and you can joke with your audience and you realize that that's okay in fact in fact it's a yeah. good thing to do <laughs> yeah, but that took me a bit of time that's incredible. Yeah. And that's the thing you, you know, you've definitely used your voice to kind of further the movement. Cause I think, you know, at the end of the day, we can take a lot of science and a lot of knowledge and we can take a lot of rational thinking. But I think at the end of the day, when you stand up as a human being in front of a group of people and you show real emotion, that's what gets people to listen. That's what gets people to stand up and, and really hear you. Cause I think a lot of the time it's very easy to, to go through the motions of learning public speaking, but you've got a cause behind you or if you've got a passion behind you I think that's when you know you really start to change lives and start to to create the shift that you want in terms of changing people they people the audience definitely detects when you're genuine really really quickly and they know you know from the outset that I'm talking about something that I believe in you know through you know down to my last atom with Viva. Hi everybody I'm gonna talk to you a little about what, what eating animals means for the animals themselves, but also the terrifying consequences for wildlife. But I'm starting with the perhaps most misunderstood and maligned of all species that people consume, and they consume them in vast quantities, chickens. Traditionally, people have been hoodwinked into believing meat was desirable because it was a so-called luxury food. The centerpiece of the table, surrounded by the essential but unglamorous vegetables. Yet when we strip away what luxury really means, it's just those that most could not afford. Even though this outdated attitude prevails for some, in fact today, meat is cheap horrendously cheap, as it's subsidised to the tune of billions of pounds across the world. Meat is the flesh of once-living individuals, baby animals who did not want to die. Meat is dirty, disgusting, and the most costly of foods imaginable, coming at the expense of our home, this beautiful, incredible planet. I suppose one of the difficulties sometimes is when you actually see what you're talking about firsthand. On the one hand, it's really important thing to do because people then know that you know what you're talking about. Um, you're not just relaying somebody else's you know, vision. It's something that you have experienced firsthand. But on the other hand, 
I can have a problem with because you're actually, for want of a better term, being forced to actually talk about it and you're in public, obviously you can't cross that line into becoming too emotional because people don't like that either. But it can be quite hard, actually, if it's something that you've seen very recent and because you're describing it to convince people. And I remember one time I was doing, um, it was at Christmas, actually, it was a fundraising dinner, and I was talking about the turkeys that I'd seen. And I was so aware that turkeys are one of the most dismissed animals on the planet. You know, you can get a lot more public sympathy for pigs, for example, but it it can be really hard with um, chickens and turkeys. And we'd rescued some turkeys and you don't know what these animals are like until you actually live with them, to be honest. You really don't. You can go to sanctuaries a lot and obviously get to know them better. But um, we had some rescued turkeys and I was just blown away, you know, because of my ignorance too, in how warm and affectionate and how much they needed to be with you. And the animal that they reminded me most of that most people relate to was most definitely dogs. And I started to describe this story of one of the turkeys that we'd rescued and then describe what I'd seen for myself. And sometimes that can be quite hard going. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think I think telling a story, a personal story that you've experienced emotionally, and we can talk a bit about adv- effective advocacy, but all the positive experiences I've ever had with talking about this lifestyle to people has always been when I've told my personal story and how I've experienced it rather than sitting there or standing there and telling people, you know, sort of talking at people, but sharing a personal anecdote about an individual. Um, And again, another topic we'll we'll explore is the individuality of animals and the sentience of animals. And and I think the gap that we have in our society where humans don't see animals that way. Going back to sort of like your, I wasn't, I was going to say your, your, your journey. (laughs) You went on to um, work in the vegetarian society Tell us a little bit about that and how that's kind of evolved. Because I think it's still called, it's still the Vegetarian Society today, isn't it? It is, yeah. When I finished my degree, I was so, you know, set on a course that I wanted to save animals. And I knew that because I did have the option of going further down the route of academia. And I actually thought, who am I going to impact? And I thought, probably barely anybody. So somehow I've got to campaign. But like you, you know, just said, I didn't know anybody who was already in campaigning. So it's it's quite, you know, a tricky field to break into because there are so few roles. So in fact, I got a job in the media initially because I couldn't get the job that I wanted to get and then jumped from that in my early 20s to an anti-vivisection organisation, which was back then in Harley Street in London. So I started to, even though I was employed sort of like in um, a research role, nobody there was doing any campaigning. And I got so frustrated, I started to take on that role myself and talk to the media and do their public speaking. So I did start to get some experience there. And it was from there that I got the job at the Vegetarian Society, at which age I would say I was probably about 24 by this point. And that was quite interesting because they'd gone through major tumultuous change where they had been very much a non-campaigning organisation, very much an information body And they'd had a director in there who'd completely shaken them up. He only actually lasted in the job for three months. (laughs) But his legacy was that they decided to start campaigning. And I was one of the, you know, beneficiaries of that, if you like. They employed myself um, as a youth campaigner. It was the first time they'd ever done it. So, So I was starting the whole thing from scratch. So I built up a youth education department, launched a, a magazine, which was called Green Scene, built up their junior department um, and got their membership to 
almost as much as their adult membership, believe it or not. I mean, at the time, it didn't seem that many, but it was actually 10,000 members that were under 18, which is astonishing. Wow, that is a lot. That's, that's you know, that's, a, that's an influencer on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, you're looking at, you know, that from most adults in most organisations of all kind of size, to be honest. So... It made a lot of noise. And the reason I got a lot of media exposure and then I really started to get a lot of experience was apart from all the school talks I was doing, I did a hell of a lot of media. I did a lot of national television because it was just so much more new. So the media, it's like when I went over to Poland, I launched Viva in Poland and it was like that all over again. You know, you're stepping off the plane and you've actually got cameras meeting you. You're going to a press conference and it's absolutely packed with cameras. You know, imagine that happening in the UK now. I mean, it just, it just doesn't. You know, so it was a very different environment that I was working in, breaking new ground. And I did a lot of talking directly to teenagers. And I have to say, I loved it. It was my, probably the most fa- my most favorite group that I've ever worked with. The group itself, obviously, the Vegetarian Society has been around uh, since the 1840s. I've read a lot of kind of history of this organization. And I find it curious that a lot of people who were in the organization in the beginning didn't eat any animal products. They were, compl- they were pretty much pretty much vegan, I would say. There is a tension between vegetarians and vegans, and there's a tension between these two groups of people because a lot of vegetarians pride themselves as being animal lovers and making an, a, a kind of ethical choice by not having meat in their diet. But yet there is this disparity. And today we know for a fact that eggs and dairy are an incredibly cruel source of animal products, but yet the, the vegetarian society still exists and is still kind of uh, essentially propagating a lifestyle which is still cruel and is still really un- unnecessary, wholly unnecessary. Because obviously, as we know, humans do not need to consume eggs or cheese or milk to be healthy. No, they, do you want to talk they, a bit about that yeah. tension between the vegan and the vegetarian? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, when I, I mean, when I was working, their times were very different, and you have to remember that there was very little even for vegetarians out there in the world in terms of actual ready products, in terms of alternatives, and in terms of restaurants and hotels. So you'd literally go to, say, your typical hotel or restaurant, and they offered you an omelette as the only alternative to meat and cheese, which seems crazy now. And those were the times that you were living in. And it was big news to actually challenge that. So we're so, you know, the propaganda, you know, right from the minute that you're born, really, in your parents back then were so convinced. So the whole society was so convinced, the medical establishment, it was very hard finding people on your side. And I was so many times, literally, Robbie, there was a full page piece in one of the nationals calling me, saying that I was creating a, a, another Hitler's youth. Because, you know, because all these kids were getting on board with what I was saying in terms of factory farming being cruel. It was very different times, really, really different. And we were seen as being, you know, real trailblazers at the time. That's what I'd call it. They they called us extremists. <laughs> and, and so you were... They still call us extremists. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot more common then. <laughs> and you were, you, were, you were pushing, you know, often at closed doors then, whereas now a lot of those doors have started to open, of course. The understanding was, of course, with vegetarianism, you know, at least, you you know, you think of all the fish, crabs, lobster that die that vegetarians don't play any part in their deaths. You think of all the pigs, the lambs, the sheep, you know, um, the beef cattle. There's still a hell of a lot of vegetarian is is doing versus the average person on the street who's consuming everything thrown at them. 
And so it was really shaking things up for all the same reasons that we're doing today. For me, it was animals first and foremost. And I was lucky in the sense that at the Vegetarian Society, because I was working with um, teenagers mainly, they allowed me a free reign really to 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 come at them from the animals um, perspective and I was the first person ever to I went to there was magazines then called Just 17 and Ms that largely were aimed at 13 14 15 year old girls and for the first time ever I mean they banned some of the ads we tried to put in the usual censorship but one of them Just 17 actually went for it and went for a much more daring ad showing factory farming the the response from it was just incredible I can remember sitting down literally months after these ad, the campaign had launched and counting the number of letters we were getting for kids and it's 500 to 900 handwritten letters wow. every day that's incredible i mean it is incredible it what you know some of those kids are still in touch with me today because they were like you know say 10 years younger than me so they've stayed with me all the way through what what i've done which is you know is is just amazing but jumping more to today obviously there's a lot more understanding things have progressed so much more that a lot more people do make the jump from meat and fish and dairy consumer to vegan. But I have to say, we did a big survey of about 3,000 people replying, which is a lot. And the vast majority of them still were, were graduating to it. So I think we have to accept and encourage people on that journey rather than vilify them and say, look, you're not perfect enough yet. You know, we have to say, look, any step you take is one worth taking and and congratulate people and enthuse them and make them want to take another step and that does mean being honest of course you you know if somebody is vegetarian then you are obviously going to talk about things like the egg industry and all the males that are killed and the same in the dairy industry the truth about that of course you are but at the same time i think you need to give people the space and time to absorb that and move at their own pace because we are all different people often do get there once they've gone vegetarian it's very much a door that's well already open and you know they're open to all the arguments whether they're through animals health or environment usually all three to be honest by the time they're vegetarian so I don't I don't get sort of really upset by vegetarian I don't get on my high my high horse use the expression but I I uh you know I'm much more welcoming than that and I, I look to all the people who've not even got to that stage which you have to remember in the UK there's many many millions that aren't there yet and it's a it's a mm. process that's how I see it mm. a process an evolution absolutely do you think do you think though that the movement if you take a step back and look at it over the years that you've been a part of it fighting for animals and uh, campaigning you know we've seen huge changes in the food system availability of um, vegan ready meals and things like that but there is still this sort of, I personally feel, a sort of an, an arrogance really about many vegans that believe that people of all sorts, especially vegetarians, should just get it and should change now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not baby steps. You know, personally, I feel it, it's a little damaging. But I mean, you know, is it is it fair that a lot of people create this kind of pressure or do you think it's counterintuitive? I think that you have to think how you would respond yourself if you had, say, two different people telling you about something that you were doing wrong in their eyes and think how you'd respond to somebody who has a tone of really telling you off and wagging their finger at you versus somebody who just wanted to talk to you and have a normal conversation, involve you in it and actually listen to your point of view and how you got to where you are the vast majority of us don't respond well 
to you know that finger wagging attitude and the, the, there is you know there is a, a minority of people who are very vociferous within the vegan movement who are very prone to this sort of like martyrdom which for me it's just not the way where I operate I mean Viva is very upbeat I use personally a lot of humor as well it's not about you know wearing a sackcloth and whipping yourself and saying you know you haven't done enough you haven't done enough all the time um, because I just think it turns people away and therefore you have exactly the opposite effect of what you um, intended and I do don't get me wrong because I understand it because I've been you know I can remember with Justin going to a particular pig farm over in Norfolk and seeing it all again, I had to actually look in the eyes of the pigs and talk about it because I was on camera. Whereas usually, for years, I protected myself from doing that by having the, you know, I was the one that was filming. Suddenly, when you're talking to camera, you're engaging with those animals because you're talking about directly what you're seeing. And it, it's, it's a really, really tough thing to do. And you kind of feel when you come out of it really angry at the world all over again. And I can remember sitting on the train coming back with him um, and I just cried openly, you know, on in daytime train. And it just, you know, it's not something I normally do, but it is what I did then. And you go through, you know, a, a, a period immediately after that when you are angry at the world, because how can this still be like this when it's so pointless and so unnecessary? And it's so much suffering. But partly because of my age and having spoken to so many thousands of people now you start to really take in what works and what doesn't work and so much about what you do it's not even what you say the words you use it's so much of it is tone so people can take on board the cruelty and the rest of it but if you talk to them in in a non-accusatory way and as soon as you go down that route of accusing them of being the demon that is responsible for all this and how dare they, how dare they, how dare they. And, you, you know, and this, 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 you've gone vegan, but my God, you bought a product that was manufactured by a company that already had, like Alpro's bought out by Danone or whatever. And therefore you're still not good enough. It just doesn't help because that person's already moved such a long way. And it's not, like I say, it's not that you don't say the truth. It's not about that. It's not about hiding things. It's just about how you put yourself across. And I wonder on social media sometimes, would these people ever on a face-to-face level talk to somebody like that as if they're the dirt on your shoe? It's without any respect for that other individual who's already made so many changes. I really dislike that lack of respect for others through social media that it can foster. Personally, that's my Mm. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about that a lot. Um, I've actually, as of this last couple of weeks, completely nuked my personal Facebook page, which I've had since 2007. And I did a bit of an experiment, really, to see what would happen if I added as many people as I could to my page, because essentially, my, 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 my kind of idea was that I wanted to connect with as many people as possible so that I could spread this message to as many people as I could. And that was my idea. But what I didn't realize was that it would expose me to thousands and thousands of people of various sorts um, and a lot of negativity and a lot of fighting and anger and infighting and accusations and 
false information and disinformation as well, that on a daily basis, I was constantly engaging with conversations that sucked my time, my energy, you know, my sanity, really, in many ways. And I absolutely love social media. Plant-based news wouldn't be what it is today. In my opinion, the vegan movement wouldn't be what it is today without social media. But it does come at a cost, I think. It comes at a cost of the way you say people speak to each other with such disdain, with such disrespect. It truly brings out the worst in people, which unfortunately, you know, I think it really is just a mirror because, you know, that behavior is definitely obviously always there if social media kind of just legitimizes it and gives it a, an ability to grow. And I have a few theories specifically around Facebook um, and around the way the comments work. So on a piece of content on Facebook, you have a comment thread underneath where people can respond to what they see and give their opinions. And then Facebook created what are called comment threads where you know one comment can then spin off into a separate conversation with hundreds of people replying and responding. And what usually happens is the most aggressive and the most divisive comments rise to the top because they are the ones that create the division. They're the ones that in Facebook's eyes, obviously, as the algorithm creates discussion and what they call engagement. And so what it actually does is it encourages disagreements and it encourages division. And obviously, from their perspective, they they want people to interact. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that people with opposing views interact. But what happens is that people, like you say, lose all sense of humanity and talk to each other like we're the dirt on each other's shoe. I think it's a good expression. And it just, people don't speak with respect. They don't have a, adult discussions and debates. They just tear into each other and it becomes a point scoring game. And you know what? That's exactly what we criticise politicians for. You know, I thought that through Brexit. I thought this is one of the most important decisions that our politicians are going to make. And it was like you couldn't talk to anybody about it, just... You know, sometimes I genuinely wanted to know people's views and open my mind because I think it's really important to stay open-minded. And it was almost impossible. I do find that worrying, actually. It's all, you know, this sort of closing in and, and the, um, the readiness to be so... Cut each other off. Yeah. And, and the- yeah, they call it cancel culture now, don't they? The cancel culture of if a person doesn't agree with you or you don't agree with them, or if you believe that they're wrong is to sort of publicly shame them or cut them down. I mean, we've, we have it several, a lot. I'm sure Viva gets it as well, where readers or viewers or members might publicly post stuff and say, plant-based news has done this and this and this, and plant-based news has done that and that and that, rather than sending us a private message, asking us a question saying, I have noticed this or I, there's a problem here to sort of publicly try and it's point scoring, I guess, like you say, what politicians do. I, I think social media has kind of fostered this behavior because I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if, have, if people have always been like that. Maybe they have. Maybe this has just brought it to the light. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ed and I'm vegan for the animals. And the reason that I spot Viva is because they do incredible undercover investigations. They've really shed a lot of light on the horrible things that we do to animals here in the UK. And they also have fantastic leaflets that have the most comprehensive information about the animal farming industries, um, which has helped me greatly and helped me educate myself and become a better activist. Moving on from obviously social media, because I want to talk about all the positives uh, of, of it as well. So, you know, you created uh, Viva and it has kind of evolved and morphed into this incredible organization and social media has played a huge and really positive role in that. Tell us a bit about how Viva started and, and, and you know how it all began. 
so I was at the Vegetarian Society and I was promoted from heading up the youth side to being their campaigns director. So I was then heading up the adult and youth campaigning. And then the then director was sacked, actually, and he had got the organisation into a bit of financial trouble. And so I had a decision then of where really what I was going to do. And I was made joint director um, with an accountant and found it really very hard to work with him, to be honest. Our, Our vision for the Vegetarian Society was just at loggerheads on almost everything. And I had a decision then to make and I was very close to leaving the whole movement and what my idea actually was to, in fact, work on wolf conversation. Uh, conver- <laughs> conversation. Yeah, woohoo, I do that too. Uh, work on uh, wolf conservation <laughs> and emigrate. And uh, I was actively looking down that route. And But there was something... Because it's very hard setting up a new organisation from nothing, as you can imagine. It seems like probably the most difficult you know, thing, route that I could possibly have chosen. But there was something nagging at me, nagging at me. Look, you built all this knowledge up for all these years. And there's very few people in the UK that have got that kind of knowledge base and who are used to doing the campaigning on it. Um, and all the rest of it and all the experience that I'd gained. And I was just like, God, if I don't do something Back then, remember, there was no um, campaigning organisation on those issues. There were information um, organisations, but not campaigning. And so I took the very, very difficult decision to actually go, you know, try to launch my own organisation, which was campaigning at its heart. So campaigning loud and proud right from the beginning and animals were the centre of that. It was hard because financially, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't a millionaire and had pretty much no money to do it with so I had to persuade other people to support it which is obviously always challenging because they haven't got any proof in that organization it doesn't exist so they knew if they got money and it went you know pear-shaped then they'd never get their money back so it was a big leap of faith for them but um, there was a lady called Audrey Eiton and she'd followed my work at the Vegetarian Society And she was very clear. She always said, I never forget, she always said, Julia, I'm not interested in the organisation. I'm interested in the the individual. And it's you that I'm interested in. So when I went to set up Viva, um, I went and met her and she gave the starting money, which was £20,000 back in 1994, which was no mean sum at all. And that enabled us to do everything. I mean, literally everything. And we launched the first campaign. I, I mean, I've never worked so hard in my entire life I can tell you it was very very hard work for a long long time and those around me um, worked so hard as well not least Tony Wardle. Tell us about the first campaign that Viva initiated. Well we launched the organisation itself so in October 1994 and again this is you know it was very exciting because It was launched in London at the Union Club and it was absolutely packed. And when I mean packed, I mean with journalists, not with supporters. We didn't have any. So so it was literally everybody from women's magazines to even the Sun newspaper, for goodness sake. You know, we had national newspapers there. We had everybody that you could think of. I'd got experts to write different aspects of veganism. So we actually launched the 12 Guides with the launch of Viva. And we launched on a campaign, which we deliberately went for a little bit of controversy. And I had so much experience in working with teenagers. I spent 
bloody hours calling teenagers and their parents to get them to speak to the media because we wanted a campaign that would work on a local level as well in the local radio and local newspapers because I knew from experience that actually they're more important than nationals in terms of getting people to change and respond to you. So we did a convert convert a parent campaign. And so what we were saying basically was that kids know more about these subjects and the importance of them than their parents do. And so we're actively asking, you know, the kids of the land to actively change their parents. But we're going to give them the backing and all the information that they need. And it was a very successful campaign. We had loads of local media coverage. We got lots of national coverage on the launch. Yeah, it was really, really exciting times. Remember, we had Paul McCartney's then press agent there as well. He was called Jeff Baker. Yeah, we got quite a bit of glamour attached to Viva as well from the beginning with celebrity support. And what at what point along the journey, though, because uh, obviously, you know, even in the recent years, I've done quite a few different things with you. Viva's been very active and busy. But was there a point where along the journey where you were in the midst of a campaign and you sort of suddenly realised that, wow, this is actually happening, as in like all the things you wanted to achieve, you're, they're, they're really happening? Or was it gradual? I gave myself two years, really, to get things going. But right from the, the second it launched, I treated it like a national organisation. And I had so many people say, my God, it's punching above its weight. And it was. You know, you had like sort of three people in this office and people, you know, were presuming that you were operating with about 20. But you see, the thing is, because I'd spent so long building up local support, I took that really seriously right from the beginning with Viva. So I literally would phone people up and talk to them myself and get them on board as a local activist. So it was very grassrooty in the sense of getting, you know, taking that really seriously and getting people to support it on a grassroots level, which really helped with a lot of the campaigns that we did because we were the first organisation to do what are called day, day of actions. We still call them that. And so one of the early campaigns, which was on kangaroos, actually, because we found out about well, because the supermarkets in the UK introduced kangaroo meat. So I very quickly found out about that trade. And we did days of action outside, you know, companies like Tesco. And we could do it, even though we were such a young organisation and actually get people outside, say, 150 stores, even though the organisation wasn't even two years old. It was an amazing feat that much, much older, bigger, bigger organisations wouldn't even attempt to do. I mean, that's just because of, you know, where I came from and what I believed in and wanted the organisation to be different and very campaigns focused and but getting local people to campaign with you. I set up Viva from my home so and that was in the middle of bloody nowhere in agricultural, we were literally surrounded by animal farmers on every side, 360 degrees. So it wasn't the best place in the world to actually start a vegan organisation, but it's in a place called Church Minshall in Cheshire near Crew and Nantwich. And then we moved quite quickly down to Brighton, which, of course, was, you know, vegan mecca comparatively. And then when we made that move, I for the first time, I employed um, four part time staff, which sounds nothing. And of course, it is nothing. And I just worked my what's off and kind of like a few months in, I'd say, being in Brighton, I thought, yeah, this this group's here to stay because I'd accepted at the beginning. I thought if this doesn't work as a national group on a national level I'm doing something else I'd accepted that and I, but I decided I was going to give it everything 
unfortunately it grew you know very very quickly in those first few years. yeah amazing and it's not been without its uh, its challenges of course um obviously going back to the kangaroo campaign the australian high commission in london said publicly that the campaign was based on false emotive and outdated information and that the meat was a byproduct of a regulated cull to control the number of kangaroos that would take place anyway it was incredible it was an organization that started campaigning on that that was only two years old and they flew their guy over from the Kangaroo Industry Association all the way to Brighton to be at the demo outside Sainsbury's. And I, I, it was unbelievable. And they, then we found out that they lobbied the Tesco CEO to actually basically try and, in effect, pay them off, you know, so that kangaroo meat stayed on the shelves. And they did everything that they could do, pull out all the stops. They said we were lying over the um, Joey's dying that it's quite hard to explain that, you know, because I find most people really don't expect national organisations and supermarkets, etc., just to lie bareface. They don't even expect major factory farmers to lie and like the National Pig Association. But we've come up against it again and again and again through the years. So, for example, just jumping more to the present with Hogwood Pig Farm, which supplied Tesco, of course, the owner of that farm got the National Pig Association to say that we had moved all the dead pigs and planted them there. And you just think, God, they actually say this in public, you know, and you're just thinking, we rely completely on truth, totally on truth, as you know. And yet, you know, they haven't got that to rely on, I suppose. But I cannot imagine doing a job where you bareface lie to camera. Why would you want to work in an industry where you have to lie because it's that. Awful. I mean, I guess it's the it's all the money, money, power, and greed, right? They it's a very, very lucrative industry to be in, and that's what drives these people. That they obviously also fueled by the the ridiculous magnetic power of tradition, but also uh, obligation potentially for a lot of people. But then, more than anything, really, it is money, and people will do anything to keep the status quo. You know, you happen to happen in the banking collapse and the banking industry as well. How do these people sleep at night? Well, they sleep at night because of their six-figure, seven-figure bank balances. <laughs> and that's what keeps them driving forward. But with these kinds of kind of foes or nemesises, nemeses, nemeses <laughs> that, you, that you have, how do you kind of keep fighting them? Because obviously with with Hogwood, for, for context for the, for the audience, that was quite a long campaign and you... And it, t- it took a long time for, for Tesco to listen. How do you keep going when, when, as you say, large organizations are prepared to do anything and say anything to keep things the way they are? Because I'm a persistent sod. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, it's one of my character traits. I, I am persistent and determined and you have to be. But also, I think really importantly, you have to be, I think, quite naturally I don't know if optimistic is the right word, but quite buoyant. Otherwise, you would sink. I mean, I have known local contacts who, you know, who had to drop out of this movement because they just cannot take it. And, and I totally understand that. So I think I think that's what you're born with. It's the genes that you're given partly that that is my nature. That And if you've got that combination of absolute determination, also the belief in what you're doing. So I know it's a cliche, but I do genuinely think when I'm doing something difficult, I'll think about what the animals are going through and think what they're going through is much worse than what I'm going through now. It's much worse. I've got yeah, to, perspective. I've got to keep doing it. I've got to keep going. Yeah, it's perspective. And I think the other thing that's really important, um, I know this people have got very different views on this, but I think it's 
absolutely vital to be able to switch off and to go places with people and not talk about animal cruelty, for example, or environmental devastation. Because the issues that I work on, when you think about it, they're also they're also mega. You know, we work on the environmental destruction, we work on animal cruelty, and we work on you know the ill health created by what we eat, and they're all, they're all huge subjects in their own right. And I think it's you've got to have the ability to get away from it. Otherwise, I think you would, yeah, sink. With some of these campaigns, we've, uh, we've, I've worked with you on a few pieces of content that have been seen by millions of people and have engaged in in conversation that a lot of people have never perhaps even thought about before. What's been some of your favorite things over the years, as far as sort of digital media that that you've enjoyed or seen the most response from? Hmm. Oh, gosh. Um, I suppose I'll jump right back to the kangaroo campaign just because it was one of the first campaigns that got us so much publicity in the UK and Australia. And to the degree where the Australian groups invited me out to Australia, they paid for it all. And I did this whirlwind media tour where it was literally like being a rock star. I did 50 50 radio interviews in the first week, followed by every major television show in Australia. So it's quite unusual to get that kind of success in in terms of in terms of media. Every supermarket that we targeted, we won. So we just targeted them one at a time rather than do them all in one hit. We just went for one after another after another. And it, it wasn't just kangaroos. It was all exotic meats. So I don't know if you remember, there's this weird thing that happened back then, which was loads of people were made redundant. There's this huge economic hit in the UK. And for whatever reason, ostrich farming suddenly became popular out of absolutely nowhere. And people were farming these poor birds who'd never farmed in their life and just thought it was some kind of you know, lucrative trade that they could drop into. Again, that's when my zoology degree came in useful. So I started looking at the stereotype behaviour of ostriches and they do what's called stargaze. And they're literally poor bloody thing. You know, the, the poor animals are going mad. And so I started campaigning against that. And I, can, I always remember... One of the last ones to to fall, if you like, uh, was Waitrose. And Waitrose like to see themselves as ahead of the game and being more ethical. We were on our way to do one of the days of actions I was telling you about. So we had um, all local groups lined up across the UK to be outside Waitrose. They phoned us on the way to the London one, which was on the Thursday, to be followed by all the local groups on the Saturday. So we're driving, you know, to the London one on the Thursday. And I got this phone call on my mobile from Waitrose saying, drop it, drop it. We're dropping all exotic meats. And I thought, wow, that was a taste of real campaigning power. And again, we were still such a young organisation. I thought we've done, we've won the whole campaign now because at that point, that was every supermarket we've got to drop all kangaroo, crocodile, and ostrich meats. Obviously, you know, I wish with every bit of my being that you could do that with pig meat, for example. It's it is quite tough at Viva because, you know, if with other campaigning groups, some of them have campaigns which are much more winnable. Our campaigning, we're basically trying to get everyone to go vegan. So you know it's not this really short-term aim. And you know, as you've just said, the tradition and the belief that, you know, we need to consume these animals and, you know, okay, factory farming might be bad, but we still need to eat, you know, all the rubbish that people are led to believe and choose to believe. You're working against so, so, so much. So one of the challenges at Viva is being able to come up with new campaigns when you're campaigning on the same topic, if that makes sense. You know, we, we launched a major campaign going back to Brighton, which you asked me what I'm, I suppose, proud of, if you like. 
although it's not a campaign we won outright, like the one I just mentioned, it was called Pig in Hell. Because people use the the expression pig in hell much more than they do now. When something is bad, they go pig in hell. And so um, we launched this campaign. And what we did is we filmed in factory farms in many counties within the UK and then got local media coverage in half of those, as in, sorry, local television coverage. So just in the Midlands, you were reaching something like two million people alone from the news coverage. These intelligent animals learn tricks faster than dogs and have even been taught to play simple computer games. They are naturally clean, sensitive creatures with highly developed senses of touch, taste, and smell. In fact, a pig can smell a human from a quarter of a mile away. They see in color, dream, and spend much of their time foraging and exploring. They may walk as much as 15 kilometers in a night. Play in all its forms is vital to piglets, and without it, they do not grow into normal pigs. What has happened to these animals on our farms? Viva has filmed in 18 units, probably not the worst and maybe not the best in the UK, just typical pig farms. This is what we discovered. This is home for most of their short lives. They will be killed for bacon, ham and pork at between five and six months old. This animal clearly has grossly swollen testicles, but is not in a hospital pen. There's not a strand of straw to root in, and no sign of bedding, with sleeping areas awash with excreta. Caked in their own feces, these filthy, barren, concrete pens are the only world these pigs will ever know. So I was pleased with that we managed to investigate all these farms and expose it to so many millions of people across the UK in a way that hadn't been done before in Britain back then. And, you know, it's the, it was the start of real change, actually. And, it, you know, because people talk about where, you know, all this veganism, this explosion in the last year or two years. And, and I think, actually, it's been a lot, well, it feels like a long time coming to me, you know, because I've been campaigning a long time. In, in terms of history, it's a blip of an eye, but things really started to change and the media started to change. And we started to get exposés placed in nationals where they were completely on our side. And that was something new as well. Little by little, you're pushing, you're pushing people, you're exposing them to these arguments and to these images and, and challenging what they've been told all their life and trying to give them, you know, the positive side of it, that this is not about deprivation because back then you didn't have all the foods available that you have now. So you're having to convince people. Got more tools to at our disposal. We have now. We've got a lot more tools at our disposal, but things did change. So, for example, you were just talking about vegetarianism. The vegetarian options on the menus just went, you know, they just exploded. And nobody, it went from literally the start of my career where you were labelled extreme. Within a few years, less than a decade, it was seen as being normal to be vegetarian. And that is a massive cultural shift in attitude. So then, of course, we're, you know, I set up Viva and it was vegan, 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 and you know, we're working towards that aim. And I think we have seen major cultural shifts in attitude towards veganism now, too. So that's something I'm really pleased to be a part of. But I suspect, like you, Robbie, I don't sit there thinking, whoa, I've done a good job. And, you know, I'm just not like that. I'm always <laughs> moving forward and thinking, it's not yes. enough. We need to do more. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm experiencing that as, at, this, at the moment. I worked on a, a kind of promotional campaign and have succeeded and basically got to the top of this competition in this campaign. And we, Plum Based News, have won this campaign and we've we've succeeded 
but I kind of won. And then I was sitting there thinking, oh, we won. Now what? <laughs> now I've got more to, more work to do because, you know, if we'd lost and we hadn't really got to number one, I probably would just, you know, carry on with something else. But winning means and succeeding means, you know, there's more work to be done because it, it just shows that you're, it, it really tells you that you're quite capable and that you, you, you're doing the things that you set out to do. It fills you with confidence, but it also can be a little overwhelming as well because you suddenly realize wow, I can actually do this. And this means that there's a hell of a lot more work that needs to be done. (laughs) Yes. And one of my frustrations, and I I know that it's yours, is money being in the wrong hands in society. And I can remember, it's just one of these things that sticks in your head. You know, you're talking about the launch of Viva. We were so broke. We had so little money. And I can remember even getting like computers and, uh, you know, photocopying all this, you know, was difficult. And I remember our then designer saying, you know, he was doing some design work for Barclays Bank and he said, they've just thrown away X hundred desks. And he said, and I literally mean chuck them, not even recycle them. And that, you know, and I was like, "Ah." and, you know, and and all, I mean, that's a tiny example, but all the way through you're thinking, how much could be achieved if we had more funding? And I think, you know, like you and I, we're not of the nature where money is what motivates us personally. Otherwise, we down different routes in life wouldn't we but you're forced to talk about money and ask for money otherwise you'll just you know fail um yeah yeah, (laughs) so it's something especially when you set up something from new like you have with plant-based news like I have done with Viva you know at the beginning you can't even afford to pay people to try and ask for money on your behalf (laughs) so you have to do so much of that and that's I think one of the toughest things about setting up something from nothing what would you say to someone who wants to set up their own charity or set up their own organization who's so passionate about getting this message out there they don't really know how to do it yet you know what what advice would you give them if they if you were starting out again i think you have to look at what it is that you want to achieve and what organizations already exist to achieve that so first of all i say stating the absolute obvious there has to be a genuine need for for that new organization i think one of the really important things to do is like for me setting up Viva I'd already built a reputation and that was absolutely crucial in being able to attract support from the beginning I think without that because I didn't have money we would have failed so I think it's a really good idea to get that experience working for an organization you know hopefully one that you believe in or one that you can at least get the right experience that you can transfer to whatever it is you know that you want to promote or protect um, that is one of the most crucial things is, is getting that experience and then, you know, moving sideways, using all that knowledge and using the contacts that you've made and um, persuading people, obviously, that what you're forming is something worth supporting. It's very easy to say, but, you know, that takes a lot of work in in its own right. So basically, it's about knowing something about what it is you want to do. And just having that clarity and the courage and conviction to go forward because, Damn, it's uh, not for the light-hearted. That's all I'm going to say. Running well, I, this organisation has not been a walk in the park. <laughs> no, I remember um, Heather Mills saying, who runs V-Bite, um, she said to one of my friends, actually, at the 25th anniversary dinner, where you won an award, Robbie. And uh, yeah. she, Thank you for that. <laughs> no, you much deserved. You know, she said, with such feeling, it's the hardest thing in the world to set up a business from scratch. Um, it's so much hard work. It takes so much of you. And she said it with such feeling. I really felt for her. But it is true. And I think going back to what you said right at the beginning about 
you know, I said public speaking, I can do it, you know, as long as I know about the topic. But that's an aside. I wouldn't be interested in doing it if I didn't believe in it because I'm not interested in self-aggrandizement at all. You've probably noticed on, you know, various things. It's, you know, it's not about promoting myself. Maybe I should be more like that. But it's about getting the message of what we believe across to people and so, like you just said, if you believe in the business or the charity that it is that you're setting up, you need that drive and belief for you to, you know, to really take you forward when sometimes you'll be wondering, hmm, <laughs> is this actually worth it? Maybe I could yeah. be doing this for somebody else, you know, and uh, actually going home at five o'clock or something. Reasonable hour. <laughs> so let me tell you a story about Hogwarts. Hogwood represents so much of what is wrong about farming and eating animals. It is disgusting, it's dirty, it's a depressing industrial unit that incarcerates bright, beautiful pigs, 15,000 of them, making Hogwood a so-called mega farm, typical, very sadly, of British farming. Viva's campaign has touched millions of people's hearts and that's why it's the right time to use the farm to shine a spotlight on the state of farming to expose not only what's accepted but what's actually encouraged as the norm by the establishment. Moving on to our current situation, so it's 2020. The world is currently gripped uh, in the in the clutches of the coronavirus, COVID-19. Viva's been putting out a lot of content and discussion, as Plant-Based News has, around the origins of this COVID-19 coronavirus. You did a vid- video recently that went viral on Facebook, had over a million views. Do you want to touch a bit about on what the video is? Uh, we'll play a clip of it, but what, what, why do you think that connected with so many people and, and why it's important to get this message out there? I think it connected so much with people because people wanted an answer for something that is so enormous in our history in terms of this pandemic going worldwide. Britain is not used to pandemics hitting us. When you look at all the pandemics, you know, through the last century or so, we've got away very lightly, I think. And so it's, you know, an unusual scenario, particularly for this island. What I wanted to put across was how coronavirus started. So, you know, there's been a lot of people oh gosh conspiracy theories and all the rest of it but just looking at the science what we wanted to say was that coronavirus comes from animals and it the, the virus has jumped from animals to people um it's almost certainly bats be, just because we know from the genetic analysis of the virus that it that it's um, very similar to a bat coronavirus but almost certainly through an intermediary intermediary animal so what is thought to have happened it's jumped from bat to pangolin to humans so the, the the video is very short it was only 60 seconds and it showed the trade in pangolins and I, th- I honestly think many people in Britain probably hadn't even heard of pangolins before this happened so I think it was a shock for a lot of people that they were the most trafficked animal or mammal on the entire planet and what they go through these helpless little totally harmless beings who just roll up in a ball oh, it's just so heartbreaking and the conditions in which they're then transported and caged in these um, so-called wet markets across China, but way beyond China. You know, they're in many countries. And the conditions that it enables those viruses to, you know, jump from animal 
to human. Coronavirus originated in bats and infected people via wildlife who are kept in the most vile conditions in wet markets. Genetic analysis hasn't completely confirmed which wildlife, but it's thought it was the pangolin. Many people haven't even heard of pangolins, but they're scaly mammals, extraordinary, fascinating and gentle animals, which tragically are the most trafficked on the planet. All eight species of pangolins are now at risk of extinction. They're mainly killed to be made into useless Chinese medicines, so-called luxury goods, and eaten as a delicacy. Surely to God, coronavirus has to become a major wake-up call to everyone on our planet that we cannot keep attacking our wildlife, bringing it to its knees without paying the heftiest of prices. And what Viva then went on to do, of course, which um, we're launching this Thursday, is a campaign called Three and Four, which is, of course, shouting loud and clear that the vast majority of newly emerging infectious diseases do come from animals because there's been so much nonsense taught through this whole COVID-19 episode. You would think that, you know, that it never happened before when in fact it's happening all the time that viruses mutate and jump from animal to human. There seems to be a reluctance on, uh, again, going back to social media, a reluctance to not even a reluctance, uh, an incompetence when it comes to people's ability to decipher information. There is a huge amount of misinformation and disinformation, which is constantly being promulgated across social media. Take something like 5G, for example. There was a huge and has continues to be a huge huge amount of rhetoric that goes on that suggests that 5G uh, transmitters are somehow causing damage to humans, human bodies uh, and in, in effect actually causing the coronavirus, that viruses are actually non-existent, that they're actually a side effect of electromagnetic radiation. Um, and this has come from, again, from social media giving a platform to phonies and charlatans, people who speak speak with conviction and speak with clarity, but they're, what they are speaking on is complete and utter nonsense. Do you sometimes feel a bit overwhelmed by the volume of this stuff? Because I certainly do, that you know we're fighting against misinformation, and it goes for the vegan uh, omnivore kind of debate as well. We know that human beings can live and thrive on a plant-based diet, yet society sort of continuously tells us that you know we're extreme and that we are we are the ones uh, spreading this false information. But when it comes to the coronavirus, when it comes to health, we know that the virus exists. We know that it potentially came from a, a wet market. You know, How do we fight against this misinformation when people don't want to even believe the experts? Mm, I think um, <laughs> you just have to keep going with the truth. And I try not to allow anything to overwhelm me. I suppose because I'm used to working on such major issues and have, having had such resistance and being called all kinds of things for literally decades that I guess I have built mechanisms to cope with it, which have maybe put me in good stead for you know the experience with this COVID-19 in the sense of having our own supporters go down the conspiracy theory route. And what, I, what, you know, what I've said to them is, look, by you doing this, you're actually denying publicity for the truth about wildlife trade and what's happening inside factory farms is that is this really what you want to do is it really what you believe and why 
And some of them have backed off and others have not. But why people want to go down conspiracy theory routes and they prefer to do that, that's a whole separate conversation. But ultimately, mm. they're all sort of saying... You need a psychologist for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're all, they're all saying the same thing that's lying behind it, or most of them, that there is um, a world cult, you know, that's made up of certain billionaires and that we're all mind controlled by you know the media and they're all too stupid to see the truth and you're just thinking wow this is just incredible again doing the zoology degree I'm very very science headed and I think that's again helped me through my whole career with Viva because I've been absolutely vigilant in terms of being able to back up everything that we say you know so on the health side I never make I never overclaim anything. You don't need to, actually, but there are some people that have done over the years and are very, very vigilant about that. So I do find it shocking when people completely shove science to one side and just make things up, completely make it up. <laughs> you know? I, think I have some theories that the reason that this is happening is because we're living in a pandemic. Most people have never experienced this before, and they are trying to post-rationalize it, oversimplify the situation and reduce it down to one simple thing a group of people, an insidious plan by the government, a microchip invented by Bill Gates to control us all, 5G trying to wipe us all out. I think people are clutching for anything but the truth, which is that it's our lifestyles and the way we live as human beings is ultimately signing our own death warrant for this planet, that the way we live, the way we eat, the way we shop, the way we travel, every action is ultimately you know, bringing the destruction of our entire biosphere that little step closer and that's was the topic of a video we made uh, with you, I made with you um called are you ready to change the world where we talk about how the time is ticking that there is a clock and we're up against it and if we don't act will humanity be here in a hundred years or will we be you know with the dodos in the ground <laughs> the arctic ocean is heating up at a much faster pace than the rest of the earth temperatures over parts of the arctic will increase as much as 54 degrees fahrenheit this month our house is on fire our house is falling apart we are right now about 11 years away from that climate breakdown will become irreversible one of the big steps we need to make, both for climate breakdown and for a whole suite of other environmental disasters and humanitarian ones, we have to switch from an animal-based diet to a plant-based diet. When you eat a burger, it's not just the cow who dies. Producing meat, fish and dairy is the main driver for wiping out the world's wildlife, for trashing trees causing our oceans to collapse. Well, what is surprising is that some people who, you know, are already um, believe, if you like, in animal rights have gone along with it as well, though, and you think that they were more ready for the truth. So that's a bit disappointing. But having said that, millions of people are looking for scientific explanations. And I've noticed, certainly in the last few days, you know, a lot of, you know, media space is being given more and more to the very notion that we're talking about and the World Health Organization being lobbied for them to say to every country, you've got to stop the trade in wildlife completely. Um, and we're going at part of our three and four on Thursday, we're saying to our government, we have to end factory farming because although coronavirus, of course, is related to wildlife trafficking, 
a lot of pandemics and zoonotic diseases, as they're called, so those are diseases that jump from animals to people, are caused directly by the way that we factory farm animals because we've given these viruses the ideal conditions for them to jump from animal to animal to animal to animal and to mutate, you know, not tens of times, but trillions of times. And it just takes those right mutations for them to be able to infect human beings. And of course, that's what's happening with increasing regularity since, well, since factory farming was invented. Absolutely. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, when we spend time on the internet, and this goes to anyone listening who is trying to find the truth of what's happening in their world or wants to understand or wants answers. For me, you know, there is a, how do I decipher information? It's all about what research you do and how you do it. People often throw the comment at each other, well, you need to do your research. And I saw a really great meme the other day, which I will read to you very quickly. And it talks about research. And, you know, people often say, well, I researched the topic. So let me read it to you. It says, please stop saying you researched it. You didn't research anything, and it's highly probable that you didn't even know how to do so. Did you compile a literature review and write abstracts on each article? Or better yet, did you collect a random sample of sources and perform independent probability statistics on the reported results? No, you probably didn't. Did you take each article one by one and look at the source? That would be the author, the publisher, and the funder, and then critique the writing for logical fallacies, cognitive dissonances, and distortions, and plain inaccuracies. Did you ask yourself why this source might publish these particular results? Did you follow the trail of references and apply the same source of scrutiny to each of them? No, you didn't. So this probably means you haven't researched anything. You read an article or watched a video and most likely had no objectivity. You came across something in your algorithm manipulated Facebook feed that somehow jived you with implicit biases and served your confirmation bias. And you subconsciously applied your emotional filters and now call it proof. We live in a scary world, my friends. <laughs> and, yet, and yet science has never, ever been so readily available to people. And in a nutshell, people are almost like overwhelmed and just jump to what it is they want to believe in some senses that makes sense to them and, and just regurgitate it with absolutely no proof behind that. Whatsoever. I think we need to train our children in deciphering information. We live in the information age, and I think that for the safety and security of humanity, our children need to be taught how to disseminate and decipher and uh, communicate using digital technology, and that that it's a skill and, a, and an asset to be able to decipher the gargantuan amounts of information that are flying at us on a daily basis. And but to also be aware that there are insidious forces that create content specifically to mislead you, specifically in the animal agriculture industry in America, Rick Berman and Associates, he's a, a lobbyist and a PR mogul, famous for working within the tobacco industry and being involved in the doubt is our product type of rhetoric where they, as an agency, create articles and videos and content and materials and posters that essentially work to try to defame and um, discredit the animal rights community, the the, the vegan food industry. Um, and they're paid by, by animal agriculture to create a confusing message because I think, was it Dr. Esselstyn says, when people hear, people want to hear good things about their bad habits and when people are confused they stick to what they know and they stick with the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. That That is a classic tactic that has been used by the beef industry in terms of saturated fat and times to muddy the water. 
you know, it's fine, you know, and the dairy industry is fine to eat butter, it doesn't damage your heart. And then the next minute, oh, yes, it does that, you know, and people are like, well, who do, who do I believe? Of course, if you've got some kind of scientific training, you can go back to the sources. I mean, that's what we do at Viva. We, do, we don't take anything as for granted. We always go back to the original papers and look at who's writing them, like you just said, and, you know, what their experience is and where they're coming from and, and make, you know, make a decision based based on that, which is why I'm proud, actually, of the, so on the Viva Health side, I know Justine writes for PBN an awful lot, and it's all based on, um, you know, that peer-reviewed science. But, you know, I think COVID-19, you know, the origins of it, you have to remember that so many members of the public have, have just don't know anything about virology. They don't know anything about infectious diseases. They had never heard the word of zoonotic a lot of people. Most people I've spoken to, you know, I mean, well-educated people have never heard the word before. They weren't aware that three and four diseases cross from animals to people. And in the UK, I mean, the video you've just made for Viva with myself, you know, the reason I put the bit about the bats in that 170 species or so are eaten on the planet is because most British people find that really shocking. And it starts to make sense then about, you know, the parts bats start to play and that and that wildlife is trafficked not on a minor scale on a major scale that is you know that's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of us dollars you know these are not minor industries these are these are industries that are bringing wildlife to its absolute knees it's so disgusting beyond words so we've got coronaviruses coming from those sources and we've got flu viruses largely coming from the factory farming sources you know and the more I've sort of gone into this and researched it, and you look at things like H5N1, which I know you know all about, but for people listening, it's one of the more highly pathogenic, more deadly flu viruses. And they have killed, Robbie, literally hundreds of millions of birds trying to contain this virus because they're so worried about the mutations and jumping to people because when it infects people, boy, oh boy, does it kill. It's vociferous. It's killing over half the people it infects. But at the moment... It tends to be people are either killing chickens or handling them in some kind of way directly. And it's not going person to person, you know, very easily. But that's one of the ones that the World Health Organization flagged up as um, um, a pandemic warning that a flu virus like that is going to make that crossover at some point. And we are going to get loads of people with conspiracy theories coming forward, aren't we, Robbie? But we know that, you know, we are. Re- I really do think we're reaping what we sow. We are. Um, as a Buddhist, I can say that. Well, I can say that from my perspective that what you create, you, you propagate. You kind of you you put something out into your world, into your society through your actions, and it will come back to you. But it blows my mind that so many people could die at the hands of something that did not have international travel at its fingertips, or at its um, protein spikes, as they are called. <laughs> but the irony is, is that it's a ticking time bomb, and ultimately, you know, there's only so much we can do. But if humanity does not change its direction, uh, there is no hope for our species. That being said, what does give you hope, though? What what keeps you what keeps you getting out of bed in the morning, <laughs> doing this every day? Like what keeps you educating people when you know it is very easy to become misanthropic? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I mean the, the thing is though what keeps keeps me real are the people around me I have to say and the animals around me but it's because one of the joyful things about running an organization like Viva is the fact that you hear from so many genuinely lovely people and people change because of something your organization has done I mean Lou just sent something around you know from social media saying 
I went to I went to a talk that Viva did, or I read a book that Viva put out. I read one of your guys. I got involved with one of your campaigns. I went to one of your festivals. Whatever you know, and I've been vegan ever since. You're an amazing organisation. You know, you know, all power to you. And they're so enthusiastic and so behind you. And you've got all the people that have had messages like that. All the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have got behind us over the years is what keeps me going. Actually, because there's a hell of a lot of goodness out there too. There is, there is, there absolutely is. And that's what keeps me going as well. I I look, you know, and for all the sort of ills of social media, it does give me a light in the darkness because, you know, in this COVID-19 pandemic, we're all working from home, most of us, and a lot of people are suffering. And our technology, ironically, the, the technology that people want to burn down because they're worried it's causing COVID-19 is, are the very tools that are keeping us connected, that are giving us those stories and those little bite-sized nuggets of, of joy, of you know, animals on sanctuaries or mm. cats doing funny dances or whatever you, your, your poison is <laughs> on, <laughs> on social media. And, you know, it's, to me, it's such a huge gift. Our technology is in my opinion, it's something that can either pull us together and create a new world or it will ultimately tear us all apart. So I think, you know, we have a a very interesting future and we are living in very interesting times, that's for sure. Coming to the end now, before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one last question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, (laughs) (laughs) obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan. (laughs) The pig's there with you for, for at least 25 years because pigs live for 25 years. Can you believe it? If I gave you one book, one vegan dish and one music album, what would you take with you? Oh, my grief, Robbie. <laughs> you should have prepared me for this one. See, whatever I say, I'm going to think afterwards, what a load of rubbish. That's not what I'd take at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to go for something tofu-based. I'm absolute tofu freak. Tofu that's marinated with spring onions and ginger. It's got to have cashew nuts with it. I've got to have garlic broccoli with it as well. Um, and rice, of course, and noodles. So, I, yeah, I'm, get, I'm going to go for tofu. It has to be tofu done just right, the really soft the kind of that just breaks apart of a touch that you never buy ready-made in a supermarket. What would be your book that would get you through your days on the desert island? A desert island for 25 years. What book's going to do that? I'm going to go for the Karma Sutra and have a imagination. Brilliant. Love it. Love it. Good choice. And the music to serenade you on your summer nights on the desert island with your pig friend. Now that is really tough because my music taste is incredibly diverse and seriously it is. I listen from everything from Pavarotti through to <laughs> through to dancing in the dark. Can I cheat and just take Spotify? <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd probably be the first guest to cheat, but I might just let you off. <laughs> I honestly find that totally impossible because my music taste is so so varied. I thought, oh god, I'm going to have to go some, to, for something with complexities in it. <laughs> I, bet, I bet your other guests are like, "Oh, my favorite artist is this," and I'm just thinking, "No, no, they don't. They everybody answers it in the same exact same way." I love it. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's, you know. It's partly because of Spotify, because I've downloaded so much music from so many artists. I actually haven't got a favourite artist anymore. Like when I was a kid, when I really liked them or I really liked them, I just have one taste, from them, one, and one from them. 
Oh my yeah, God. I might I might shift the question and say to people, what's your favorite music download service? <laughs> yeah, that'd be easy. That'd be easy. Yeah. I'm going to have to go for Pavarotti or somebody because of the complexity. Well, his music is incredible and you can blast it out across the island. Yeah, we're probably surprised a lot of people, but yeah, that's what I'm... Yeah. I'm going to stick. I love it. He's, 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 he's a force of nature, that's for sure. And uh, and so have you been a force of nature, Juliet? Thank you for all the incredible work that you've done over the last few years and all your work with Viva. And it's been a real pleasure to work with you and create content and hopefully influence a few people to join our lifestyle. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for all you do too. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. We'll be back next week with everything from veganism, animal rights, food, technology, health, fashion, and everything in between.